If you'll have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 17. My name's David. I'm the pastor here. Really glad uh, that y'all are here this morning. Uh, somebody just uh, came up to me there at the end of that last song and said when we were, during that time of communion, we were uh, talking about healing, and I said something about a right eye. Uh, this person particularly had the same impression and thought it was for someone's cornea. So, um, is that me making all that noise? If, if uh, you have an issue with the cornea on your right eye, we'll have time at the end uh, after the message where we'll um, pray for folks and we would love for the opportunity to pray for you. I hope that stuff wasn't weird for you. Kind of the, my theory is if God uh, could speak all of this, it's not really a big deal for him to speak to us today either. And if his heart is uh, to heal us, Obviously, that's all-encompassing, but uh, there's certain times where it seems like there's certain things that he wants to heal, and I don't know what's going on in your life or how you feel about that, but I think there's sometimes where those are just kind of, um, uh, Kim Kramer's on our staff, she calls those things kisses from God, where it just seems like he's doing something special just to let us know uh, that he knows what's going on in our life, and he really does care. So that's all that was. I wasn't anything magic or mystical or anything like that. That was just us trying to hear the Lord and follow along with him. Well, we've been in Revelation for a long time now, and we're on chapter 17, so we're almost done. And I think this is our last kind of depressing week. It's been been hard for a while here. Um, my theory from the beginning has been that we will have, if you're, we will have to live through the Great Tribulation. I don't believe that the church is going to be taken from the earth before that last nasty time period that closes out history. And we can, you don't have to agree with me on that. I've said that before. Uh, You definitely don't have to agree. I do think I'm right. But you don't have to think I'm right. So we've been looking at kind of the end times, and particularly what Jesus says about the end times, and trying to tie that into Revelation. If you want a a good key to the end times, read Matthew 24. It's so much easier to understand than Revelation. It's a lot shorter, and it's a lot simpler. And then you can tie in the stuff you read in Revelation back into Matthew 24. So that would be my recommendation. If you want to try to figure out where you stand, instead of just taking my word for it, which would be the right thing to do, um, I would say, for sure, read Matthew 24. 24, see what you think. I'll talk about any of that stuff that you want to talk about. We can set up time and talk about any of that stuff that you want to if it's helpful. The, the, the deal for me is that what Jesus says about the end times, the thing that comes through is that we need to be ready. That's um, in Matthew 25, there are these three parables about the end, and really the theme that runs through all of them is you've got to be ready. What we do now sets us up to either succeed or fail at the end and then at this final judgment, and we don't want to miss that. So we've looked at deception, we've looked at um, tribulation, we've looked at wrath, all of these really fun things to look at on Sunday morning. This morning we're going to look at something that you may or may not have uh, read about before. We talked a few weeks ago about the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet. Most folks have heard about those guys. Some people have not heard about this woman that we're going to read about this morning. This is Revelation 17, starting in verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, those seven bowls, if you went back and read chapter 16, those are these seven bowls of God's wrath that are kind of poured out on the earth. And uh, the indication is that's that's it. Like that's the last 
judgment of God is when these seven bowls are poured out. So that's what those seven bowls are. Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adultery. Remember, we said that inhabitants of the earth, that's a technical term in Revelation for uh, people who are not following Jesus. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes, and of the Abominations of the Earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And then verse 18 says, The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. There are lots of theories on who this woman, Babylon, or the great prostitute, whatever you want to call her, there's lots of theories on who she is. Um, the most prominent is she was ancient Rome. John was writing during the time of the Roman Empire, and who he's referring to is ancient Rome. There's some people who think uh, this great prostitute is Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be uh, rebuilt in some way and it's going to have this uh, a lot of significance. Jerusalem, some people think, again, sorry if this is your background, the Catholic Church, I don't think that, but that's throughout a time, particularly around the time of the Protestant Reformation, you'll find some guys who are saying that it's uh, Babylon is a Catholic church. Some people say it's multinational corporations. Um, the European Union, some people say it's the United States. I don't think it's any of those things, actually. Uh, to me, if you read through 17 and 18, both deal with Babylon and in the first half of 19. Those three, two and a half chapters, all deal with the fall of this great prostitute. To me, what you're looking at is this uh, anti-Christian kingdom. We've, we talk all the time about the kingdom of God, and we've talked before that there's also a kingdom of darkness or a kingdom of Satan or whatever you want to call it. That, to me, is what Babylon is. It's this anti-Christian kingdom that's worldwide in scope and influence and has political, religious, and economic influence over the entire world. Uh, I think you can look back and you can see that the Roman Empire was that on a smaller scale. Uh, Babylon, who you know, John refers to in the Old Testament, same thing on a smaller scale. If you remember what we said in Revelation, when you're looking towards the end times, it's really not that different now. It's just the intensity is less and the scope is smaller. Um, in the end times, the intensity is going to be maxed out and the scope is going to be global of all of these things that we read about. But we experience the same things now, just to a lesser extent and with less intensity. So I would say, yeah, there's always a Babylon. There's always a Babylon. From the time John wrote this on, there's always some, this anti-Christian kingdom is always kind of uh, operating in the world to a greater or a lesser extent. A couple of things on this just to kind of solidify my point. Um, this thing that this beast that the woman sits on, it says, a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. There's a, a, a bigger description of that starting in verse 7. We just skipped it because it's really confusing. From verse 7 through about verse uh, 14, you can see a description of this, this beast. And it's actually it's the beast that we read about in Revelation 13. It's the Antichrist. So you've got this woman is kind of getting power from the Antichrist who receives power from Satan. So that's kind of my deal on it's evil. You can see the worldwide influence several ways. 18.3 says, All the nations have drunk the maddening wines of her 
adulteries. 19.2 says Babylon has corrupted the earth with her adulteries. So you can see it's worldwide in scope. That's what makes me think it's not some of these uh, other entities that don't have that type of influence. Political 18.3 and 9 both say the kings of the earth committed adultery with her. So you've got the rulers of the earth are connected with Babylon religious. 17.6 says she was drunk with the blood of the saints. 18.2, she's become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. 18.24, in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints. This economic component, 18.3, the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. And uh, 18.11-19, speak about all of these merchants weeping because nobody's buying their stuff anymore. And there's this long list of stuff that their ships carry, and those ships are not carrying things anymore. So I think you can see there, again, in my opinion, there's a worldwide scope to Babylon. It's got a political and economic and a religious component. I think those things that we listed, Jerusalem, the Roman Empire, Catholic Church, all those things, no. I think this is bigger than any of those entities. This is going to be bigger than that. Interesting, I think, if you look at the names in 17.5, Babylon is, or this woman is called Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. And if you flip over to 19.7, the very next picture you see after this destruction of Babylon is this kind of invitation to the wedding of the Lamb, Jesus, and the church, the people of God. And we read, um, the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. So you see this contrast between Babylon, and then in two more chapters, this bride will also be called the New Jerusalem. There's this contrast between Babylon and the New Jerusalem, or between this prostitute and the bride of Christ. And you can see even in the way they're described in 17, I think it's four, she, the Babylon's described with purple and scarlet. She's dressed in purple and scarlet and has glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. And in 19.8, the, the bride is dressed in fine linen, bright and clean, and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Babylon's associated with the beast in 17.8. Um, this beast is described as the one who he once was, now is not, and yet will come. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus is described as the one who was and is and is to come. So you can see this contrast between whatever Babylon is and whatever the people of God are. You can see that running throughout these few chapters, and I think John's making a point there to show this is this, this is an anti-Christian kingdom that's set up in opposition to the kingdom of God. And we've said before, the inhabited, the inhabitants of the earth. That's a technical term in Revelation for everyone who is not following Jesus. Those are the folks who um, I thought that was me <laughs> thumping somehow. It's a swing hitting the wall. So. Um, Make sure their kid didn't have a concussion in there. So <laughs> she's going to check on it. Um, it says the waters you saw where this uh, prostitute sits are people, multitudes, nations, and languages. So you've got this idea that Babylon is this kingdom with all these people as opposed to the bride of Christ, which is us, the people of God. So you can see this contrast running throughout. And in my opinion, what John is trying, what he sees is in the end times, there's going to be this massive worldwide anti-Christian kingdom that's going to have influence politically, religiously, and economically. I think there are kind of foretastes of that throughout history. Right now, we talked a couple of weeks ago, there's 200 million Christians who are persecuted for their faith every day. They face imprisonment, torture, death. I think about 165,000 Christian, 165, Christians a year are killed 
solely because they are Christians. That's going on right now. If we said to them, who is Babylon, they'd tell you in a heartbeat. It's their government is what they would say. Or it's, the, or it's for some it's the communist government, for some it's radical Islam. Those are the major persecuting factors against the church today. And if we ask some of these 200 million persecuted Christians, who's Babylon, they could tell you who they're, in their mind, in their world, who Babylon is. If I ask us, we're going to say, I don't know. Because we're not really squeezed like that. We've talked about that before. Tribulation means squeezing. We're not squeezed, so it's pretty easy for the lines to be blurry. One of the, I think, the best things about Revelation, one of the, the strongest truths is at the end of the day, there's going to be a line and you're on one side or the other. There's really only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of not God, and you're in one or the other, and that's it. And right now, because we're not squeezed, we don't have to choose. The line can be blurry, and we can think we're sitting on a fence or we've got one foot in each camp or whatever. But in reality, the kingdom is that the, the fence is in the kingdom of not God. And at the end of time, everyone's going to have to choose. And that's kind of the direction that we're headed. And if you went to these places around the world where people are already experiencing great tribulation, the line is clear. And everybody knows who's in and everybody knows who's out. And they can tell you who Babylon is because Babylon's the one that's crushing the people who are in. And eventually, according to Revelation, that's where the world is headed. And that's not to scare you. That's just to say that's where we're headed. The question for me becomes, well, we don't live there and we don't live in that time, so... Does it matter who Babylon is? Does it matter who this great prostitute is? Who cares? And what does that have to do with life on July 13th in 2008 in Marietta, Georgia? And this is what I would say. Again, all of the things that we read about in Revelation, we can pull back just lesser scope, lesser intensity into our life. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul talks about the spirit of the world and says we've not been given the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God, the spirit who is from God. And I think kind of where we live, we don't live in this place where we've got, this isn't happening to us in terms of what we read about in Revelation and it's not happening the way it is in some of these other countries and other places of the world that we can read about. But there is a spirit of the world in our community. And in my opinion, that spirit of the world will lead to Babylon. When that's, as that spirit of the world grows in terms of its intensity and its influence, eventually that's what paves the way for this massive anti-Christian kingdom. I, I don't know if you can follow that or not. There's, there's this attitude or set of attitudes that I think we deal with living here where we live that eventually it is those attitudes that will lead to the creation of this massive anti-Christian kingdom. I think you can go back and look at that in history. You can look at it with Babylon. You can look at it with Rome. I think you can look at it in these countries that are facing persecution now. You can go back and look at the attitudes that kind of pave the way for those attitudes to become action in terms of this anti-Christian kingdom that usually is mostly political and also has economic and religious kind of feet or tentacles, however you want to say that. So the, for me, the question is, well, what's the spirit of the world here in Marietta in 2008? This is totally kind of where my opinion, and you can agree or disagree, but I'll just throw these, a few things out to you. I think there's three components of this spirit of the world that eventually will lead to this creation of Babylon, this massive anti-Christian kingdom. That's not, I'm not talking about the United States. This thing is worldwide, but there are things I see here in Marietta that 
I would definitely say, are the spirit of the world and not the spirit who is from God. And there's three components. The first is politically, and I think the pull is this, and I'm not going to talk about this a lot. I think it's the one that um, most of us don't deal with politics on a regular basis. We engage once every four years, you know, to kind of pick a president, and then usually we kind of go along our way. For most of us, there are other people who are really into it, but most of us, we don't engage politically on a regular basis. But I will say this. To me, the pull that I see is for self-interest over service. That's the deal. I think that's the pull of the spirit of the world politically is for self-interest over service. And eventually, that pull will lead to this anti-Christian kingdom. When the people in control stop worrying about anybody else and just their little, their group and what's best for them, that's how you get to a place that we see about seeing these other countries where a small group of folks in government are wiping out tons of people who don't believe what they believe or who see Christianity as a threat to their establishment, their power base. And so they crush it. And they crush people who believe in it because it's a threat to their power and their control. And I think the same thing can happen. That's the deal. Self-interest over service. This is campaign season. You can see it in the campaign ads. They're all... In general, they're appealing to our selfishness. This is what I'm going to do for you. This is how I'm going to make your life better. We all know that they can't do the things that they say they're going to do. And they know that we know that they're not going to do the things that they say they're going to do. But they say them anyway, over and over and over again. They're appealing to our, our self-interest. And what they're doing is they're saying what they got. This is a broad statement. They're saying what they have to say to get elected, that they're playing the game. And that's, again, that's a broad brush, but that's kind of where we've come, is it's not about service anymore. It's about self-interest. And you get there, wherever there is, locally or nationally, and then it's about maintaining what you've got. And that type of attitude eventually leads to this anti-Christian kingdom. We're going to, this is, let me say one other thing about that. In November, when you pick a president, I can't tell you who to vote for. That's against the law. I wouldn't even if I could. But I'll say this. Look at character. Character trumps policy every time. Seriously. Virtue is the most important thing to look for. The most significant event in George Bush's presidency was 9-11. That wasn't on anybody's campaign platform in 2000. It wasn't. That was an unforeseen event that totally defined his eight years in office. And he made decisions, whether you agree with him or not, based on his character in terms of reacting to that. That's the thing that we need to grab onto. And I'm not saying anything about anybody running. I'm just saying look at their character. Because decision, ultimately a politician is a decision maker. And our decisions come out of our character. And if you can't trust that, there's no way you can, can, you can trust the decisions. There's a, you can Google this, how to pick a president. Just Google that. There's a great article in Christianity Today that kind of walks through what those things are, if you're concerned. So that's the political. We'll move off that before too many of you get up and walk out. Religiously, this is what I think the pull is for us religiously. And I I do feel this in Cobb County. I've kind of born and raised here. I know some of you were as well, is the pull towards being lukewarm. We live in the Bible Belt, and I think we have a lot of kind of census Christians. What I mean by that is on the census, that's what we check. We check that we're Christians, and that's about as far as Jesus influences our life. When we look at the choices, my choices are Jewish, Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, other, agnostic. Well, I guess out of those, I'm a Christian, if I have to pick one. 
I might have a membership letter at a church. Maybe I've been baptized. Maybe I've been confirmed. Maybe at some point when I was eight, I was in Bible school and I prayed for God to forgive me of my sins. But does Jesus really influence my life on a daily basis? That's the question. And I think in our community particularly, there's a pull towards being lukewarm. It's not socially acceptable where we live in the Bible Belt to be totally disassociated with the church in most circles. It's also not socially acceptable, acceptable to be too far with Jesus. And so we kind of straddle this fence of lukewarm. We're good, we're moral. In certain times, we can kind of be cultural Christians, Christmas, Easter, that type of thing. But in general, I would say, does Jesus influence your life on a daily basis? Yes or no? And to what extent? And I think that's the pull of the spirit of this world that eventually will lead to, we talked last week, about the love of many growing cold. Lukewarm is a step towards cold. That's the transition. you got a pot of boiling water. The only thing you have to do for that pot to get lukewarm and then cold is just take it off the burner and set it down. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to add anything. You don't have to do anything. Just take it off the heat. And the same thing is true with us. If we're not actively engaging the Lord, that's just like getting moved off the burner. And over time, we'll become passive, and then from passivity, we'll become apathetic, and from apathy, we'll become lukewarm, and then we become cold. And none of us want to get there. None of us start out saying, you know what, I want to be cold towards God. That's not what drew you into the faith. Nobody does that. But according to the Bible, many people are going to get there, and I think it's because we don't engage. When I think about, again, life here in Cobb County, this pull towards lukewarmness, is very strong. It's easy to be a Christian in some senses where we live. It's easy to say, yeah, I go to this church, and yeah, this is what the sermon was about, and yeah, I have a personal relationship with the Lord, and I pray. Or I re-. It's easy to do all those things, as long as it kind of stays in your house and stays in your church. It gets difficult when the Lord asks you to engage Him on some other level that might influence somebody else. That's where it gets hard. And I think that's where a lot of us pull back. This is no guilt here. I don't know, no guilt. I'm just saying, to me, when I look at our community, the pull of the spirit of the world religiously is towards being lukewarm, which is might as well be cold. Y'all have read the same verses I have. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, so what am I going to do? Spit you out of my mouth, which is disgusting. But that's the picture there in Revelation 3. I think it's 16 and 17. And I, again, that, that's not a heavy thing. That's not a guilt thing. I think it's, uh, it's just, that's the pull. And for us, the remedy is to engage, just to engage. I noticed that even among, we pray here on Tuesdays. And I was noticing even this Tuesday how easy it is for people who are coming to a prayer meeting in the rain at 730. I mean, there's some commitment involved in that. Even for those of us doing that, how easy it is just to kind of get passive in terms of engaging the Lord. And y'all have all been in relationships. You know how that is, how quickly you can fall into just going through the motions. It's Valentine's Day. Here are your flowers. It's your birthday. Here's your car. You know how quick you can do that. That's easy. You're still doing all the same stuff, but you're not engaging one another. That's passive, apathy, lukewarm, cold. That's the way it goes. And that happens in all of our relationships, and it's even more so in our relationship with the Lord because we can't see Him. 
He doesn't have the, the anniversary circled on the calendar to remind you. Again, that's not a guilt deal. That's just a reality thing. And for us, it's engage. Engage. When you get up tomorrow, you need to figure out how to engage the Lord. I'm not saying you've got to have a quiet time. I'm not saying you've got to memorize Scripture. I'm not saying you've got to sing in your car on the way to work. I'm saying you've got to engage the Lord. Period. And then on Tuesday, you need to engage the Lord. And then on Wednesday, you need to engage the Lord. And if you do that, that's what will keep you from growing cold. That will keep you from being lukewarm, and it will not be super easy. It's simple, not super easy. It doesn't have to be really difficult either, but it does require you intentionally saying, I'm engaging today on this point. And you can do it just as simply. God, I want to engage you, and I don't know how. Help. And he'll show you what to do during your day if you're sensitive to him. So that's kind of the religious deal with Babylon in our world here. I see a pull towards lukewarm. And the last one is this economic pull. There's an economic component. And I think in our community, and this is not a surprise to anyone who's lived here for more than about 10 minutes, the pull is to more. That's where we live. We live in our little world here in Marietta. There's a pull towards more. The lifestyles of the super rich, I don't think any of you guys are super rich or our giving would be higher level than it is. So I'm assuming nobody here is super rich. The lifestyles of the super rich usually aren't a temptation for us. You guys aren't going to buy a $6,000 shower curtain. You're not going to pay $75 for a hamburger. There really is a hamburger that costs $75. You're not going to spend Mike Tyson $410,000 on your own birthday party. You're not going to do that. Most of that stuff, for, you see that stuff and it doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't tempt you. You're not pulled in that direction. You don't covet that because it's so far out of reach. Where we're tempted is the stuff a half step above. We should get cloth and we get leather instead. It's just the half step. If you go back and read Revelation 18, there's this list of stuff that Babylon is trading in. Um, gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple silk, scarlet cloth, citron wood, articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, incense, myrrh and frankincense, wine, olive oil, blah, blah. All that stuff is middle class stuff, which I think is interesting. It's not, that's not the super rich stuff. That's middle class stuff. And where we live, that's the pull. It's the half step up. Most of us aren't tempted by the people who are, most of us are, don't, Bill Gates is not a stumbling block for us because we know that isn't happening. That is not happening for us. So it's so far beyond the realm that there's no hook there. There's no hook in our hearts or in our life for that type of a lifestyle. But there is a hook in our heart for the person a half step above us. Just a little bit of a stretch. It's four bedrooms instead of three. That's the deal for a lot of us. And that's where the pull is. It's towards more. And ultimately that ruins us. Excuse me. Uh, Hebrews 13.5 uh, says this. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Philippians 4, 11 through 13 says this, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The key there is this idea of contentment. If I said, do you love money? Most of you are going to say no. Paul says that's the big deal, the love of money. Not necessarily having money, but loving money. And so the way we get out of that is we say, well, I don't love money. I just need a little more. 
So, what I want to ask you is not how much money do you have, not how much money do you give, but are you content? And if the answer to the question is no, well, that's the issue. Then, you're, then you are susceptible to this pull towards more. And if you live in Marietta for very long, that's where you're going to head, towards more. That's just the reality of where we live. It might be the same in other places. We've been in other places where it's not that way, but it does seem to be that way here, this economic pull towards more. And if you're not content, you're vulnerable. I don't care how much you have. I don't care how much you spend. I don't care how much you give. I don't care how much you save today. What I care about today is, are you content? And if you can't say yes, then there's a vulnerability in your heart. There's a hook that the spirit of this world can use to pull you towards wanting more. And Paul in 1 Timothy to Timothy, this is his one-on-one letter to Timothy, trying to help this guy get going. He says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Wanting more is the root of all kinds of evil. And the defense, the remedy to that is contentment. Paul says, I can be content. I've learned to be content in all of these different circumstances. If I've got a lot, if I've got a little, if I'm hungry, if I'm well-fed, it doesn't matter. I've learned the secret of being content. And the secret of being content, you see it in Hebrews 13 and in Philippians 4, is recognizing your ongoing relationship with Jesus. It's interesting. What does it say in Hebrews? Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's the reason you can be content. If we get the reality that our Father is the King, the King owns everything, and the King is passionately in love with us. If we can get that, then we can be content. If we don't get that, we'll never be content because we're always going to worry about where's it coming from. If you can get that you're intimately connected with the guy that's got it all, and he's more than happy to give you what you need, if you can get that, if I can get that, then we're on our way to learning to be content. And until we get that, we'll never be content. And it doesn't matter how much we have. And y'all know that just as well as me. Y'all read the same stories I do. These guys who go blow through hundreds of millions of dollars in a short amount of time. Because they're always wanting more. More, more, more. We would think, gosh, if you got $400 million in a 20-year period, you're never going to go through that. Mike Tyson is evidence that you can. Michael Vick declared bankruptcy last week, right? Highest paid player in the history of the NFL. Now, he's had some other problems for sure that have hurt his income, but you get that. I did a Google search. There's a lot of people who've declared, really famous people who've declared bankruptcy. Abraham Lincoln, Walt Disney. There's lots of guys who've declared bankruptcy. And some of it was poor investments. A lot of it was they wanted more. They, just, they wanted more. They weren't content with what they had, even though what they had was a ton. And we might look at our own life and say, well, if I just had more, then I'd be content. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. The way to be content is to recognize your relationship with the guy who provides everything. Then you'll be content, whether you have a lot or a little. And I'm not saying being content is going to get you a lot. You've got to learn to be content with a little as well. So there's a political component. To me, it's this idea of self-interest over service. That might not hit you necessarily where you are because you might not be super engaged in politics on a regular basis. The thing I would say that does hit you is in a few months we all are going to vote, and I would say look at character over policy. Policy is empty promises in general. 
Character is what's going to see you through. We, nobody knows what's going to happen in the next four years. And what we want is somebody making decisions for us who we know what's in their heart. Even if we disagree with the decisions they make, if we know it's coming out of a character that we can say amen to, yet we feel good about that. That's a broad brush. I'm sorry for those of you who are into politics and say policy is very important. But that, that's a broad, We're shorthanding here. There's a religious component. And that's this pull towards being lukewarm. And the defense against that is to engage. You have to engage the Lord. We've talked before, when the Israelites were in the desert, God provided manna for them every day. Every day they walked out, there was this stuff on the ground. They were supposed to pick it up and eat it. It said it tasted like honey, but they got tired of it really quick. But what God said you can't do is you can't collect enough for two days. You, all you get is what you're going to eat today. And you've got to come out tomorrow, and you've got to get it again, and tomorrow, and get it again, and the next day, and get it again, except for the day before the Sabbath. Then you get enough for two days. Otherwise, you only get enough for one day. If you get too much, they woke up the next morning and had maggots in it, which would be gross. So the point of all of that to me is engage every day. There's fresh bread every day. We can't live on yesterday's manna. You can't live on what you did yesterday with the Lord, what you did last week, the prayer that you prayed at summer camp when you were seven, that doesn't work. What God is saying is, is that where, where's the fresh bread in your life? You have to engage him on a daily basis. And the last is this economic deal. And what I would say about that is learn to be content. I don't care how much you have. I don't care how much you spend, save, give, whatever. Those things are important, but they're secondary. Primary to me is, are you content? And we can all lie about that and say, yeah, but seriously, are you? If you're not, then you're vulnerable to being pulled away by the spirit of this age, which will lead to all kinds of issues for all of us down the road. Let's pray.